I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth Movement Mothership producer, composer, musician, and consultant, Pepe Willie, the man who mentored and first recorded a teenage prince. Bringing Prince into his own band called 94 East, he schooled the eventual superstar, genius on rehearsing, song construction, arranging, and the business of music. Combining synthesizer, rock, and jazz elements with funk and R&B, and having also influenced other young, aspiring local musicians like Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Morris Day, Andre Simone, Matt Fink, and Bobby Z. Pepe has been referred to as the godfather of the Minneapolis sound. He remains active today through Pepe Music and its Rio Deo label. And in 2020, released his autobiography titled, If You See Me Now, My Six-Decade Journey in Rock and Roll. Pepe, officially welcoming you. How are you? Oh, wow. With that introduction, Scott, awesome. <laughs> Actually, I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. And, uh, I appreciate the invite and uh, talk about uh, one of your favorite artists and mine, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And you're coming to us from Nevada today, right? Yes, I'm in Nevada. I live in Minnesota. I, uh, I bought a place in Nevada, a condo in Laughlin in 2018. Uh, I couldn't take the Minnesota winters any longer. I, I just couldn't do it. It was just way too cold. I don't know why I didn't do it 10, 15 years ago, and I should have. But I have a nice place here in Laughlin, and my uncle lives in Las Vegas, so I get to see him and play golf with him. So, so much history. I uh, can't wait to dig into it. Thank you again for doing this. And um, I understand your original roots go all the way back to uh you growing up in Brooklyn with a musical family. Um, I know you had some exposure yeah. and involvement with little Anthony and uh, uh, I think a relative was yeah. involved with Eddie James and things like that. So could you just kind of summarize you know, how you came up in that? Yeah. Um, I um, was always interested in music and I thought it was relatively easy uh, to write lyrics and write songs in my head. You know, I must've been like maybe 11 or 12 years old, I used to hear like Fats Domino on the radio. A lot of people don't know who Fats Domino is, but he, he was great, you know. And I used to listen to him on the radio and I was going like, wow, you know. I said, I can do that. And I'd walk down the hall in my father's apartment and stuff and I'd make up things in my head as I was going outside. I had the, the, uh, the I had background, I had everything in my brain. And then I sighed and played, you know, that was it. But I found out that my uncle was uh, in, uh, he's the founding member of Little Anthony, the Imperials, you know, Mr. Clarence Collins. And uh, I, I knew him when I was 10, okay? 
he knew me much longer because it's my mother's brother, of course, you know. And uh, he came over to my father's apartment to pick up one of my sisters. And, uh, and I said to him, I said, you sing with Little Anthony and the Imperials? And he was like 17 then, you know, I was 10 years old. And he gave me this sly remark. Yes, I sing with Little Anthony and Imperials, you know, just like a 17-year-old teenager. And that was awesome. So five years later, they were playing at Brooklyn Paramount uh, in Brooklyn. And, uh, and I wanted to go to that show. So I went down there. He took me down there. And I went backstage. I met all the stars. And I was running back and forth to the store for Little Anthony and the Imperials. And my uncle says to me, he says, Pepe, he says, why don't you go knock on some of those other stars' doors? And see if they want anything from the store. Because I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just in awe of just being in the room with these, you know, little Anthony and Imperials. And uh, so I went and I seen Chubby check the door, you know, Mr. Twist himself. And I <laughs> knocked on the door and he says, yeah, come on in, man. And I came on in the door and I said, would you like it from the store? And he goes like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go get me a pack of Salem cigarettes, you know, then you can do that in, in the 60s. And uh, so I came out the door, went and got him some cigarettes and I came back. And this is the first time I found out about fans. I didn't know anything about fans, groupies or anything. And um, the, when I was coming back with uh, uh, cigarettes, one of the people behind this police line, they had a police line and there's like fans, I mean, just screaming every time the door would open. And I knocked on so that the guard would let me in. And uh, uh, one person had said, hey, to the guard as he opened the door, how come this guy go in and out when he wants to? And me, like an idiot, I said, oh, that's because I held up these Salem cigarettes. I said, that's because I went to the store for Chubby Checker to get them these cigarettes. Man, and everything just went crazy. They tore down the barrier and they was coming at me. They grabbed me, they grabbed my shirt. They tried to get the cigarettes, they ripped my shirt and the guard had to pull me in the door. And that was the first official time that I knew about fans and groupies and any of that. So I learned a valuable lesson there, you know, don't say anything, you know. And that's how it all started there. And then that next following year, Murray Decay was a top DJ in Winds, New York, in uh, uh, Manhattan. Uh, he gave his rock and roll shows at the Brooklyn Fox Theater. So they had all the whole Motown review there. I mean, from Stevie Wonder to Mary Wells, the Supremes, uh, the Miracles, the Marlettes, uh, Martha and the Vandellas, and then they had uh, 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 the Miracles, the Temptations, Full Tops, and I was on the door for all of them. And then plus, you know, Little Anthony Imperial, they were there, they from right out of Brooklyn. Uh, Dion Warwick was there, uh, Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells was there, uh, uh, Dusty Springfield was there, uh, Ray Charles, Marvin Gaye, I mean, you name them, and they were there, Wayne Newton, and I went up and, up and back, you know, to stage, uh, uh, up and back and forth, um, dressing rooms, getting stuff all of those artists. That's wow. my learning curve. 
Yeah, <laughs> it was awesome. And that's when I knew I wanted to be in this business, you know, because, you know, after the shows, they did like four shows a day. And sometimes they did five shows a day. The lines were around the corner. The kids was out there from like four in the morning, sleeping in the streets, you know, just getting tickets early. And when uh, the, some of the shows were over, you know, all of these, these, these artists, man, they used to be backstage and stuff, started singing gospel songs, you know? And I'm going like, wow, you know, the Temptations, Four Tops, everybody. I'm gonna, I said, how did they know? how did they know all these songs? <laughs> you know, how did everybody know these songs? Everybody's from different places, different states, you know? And, uh, and everybody was getting along, black, white, you know, you know, I, you know. And now it's back in the sixties and I was going like, you know, I said, this is the business that I want to be in, you know, because I loved it. That, Everybody was getting along. There was no racial crap. It was nothing, man. It was just awesome, you know? And I devoted my life to be in this business. <laughs> yeah, that's a heck of a thing coming up around all those superstars and getting that influence. And uh, how did you develop actual, like, musical abilities, though? Well, I, I wanted to be in the uh, uh, the music industry so bad that I didn't know. I only thing I knew how to play was drums. And um, I wanted to be able to play another instrument that had chords because, you know, drums doesn't have chords. You, you know, how are you going to do it? So I went and I bought me a, uh, a guitar from a pawn shop. Uh, that cost me like $15, you know, acoustic guitar. And I bought this rock chord guitar book from the guitar store and uh, from the music store. And then I, I just started, you know, fingering stuff and figuring it out and reading a lot. And I learned a bunch of chords and, and, uh, and then I started, you know, writing songs, you know, just by ear playing the chords and then adding these other chords and oh that works and yeah this works and and then I started writing uh, melodies and I remember the first one of the first songs I wrote was called uh, my mind is open and it, and um, uh, I used to take all my lyrics to this the late great Teddy Randazzo who wrote going out of my head and hurt so bad and you know, outside looking in, wrote all these songs for the Imperials. And he used to critique all of my lyrics. And uh, I mean, one day when I first went to him, I mean, he was crossing out so many words. He was crossing out this and that. And I was almost in tears because I, you know, I'm sitting up all night and I'm writing lyrics, writing, you know, and I'm going like, oh, this is great. And then I get to him and he's, crossing this out no you don't need this you don't need that you don't need this and uh, so i learned and uh, and and future times i was taking some of my lyrics to him it, it got less he started crossing out a little less 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 and less and uh, so i wrote this song called my mind is open so my uncle heard it and anthony heard it so uh they had this group called the blues busters out of Jamaica, these two guys, they were like a Sam and Dave, but they're out of from Jamaica. And uh, uh, they recorded, you know, I was in the studio 
and you know, and even recording my song, my mind is open, and I'm listening to this guy singing it, and I'm listening to the band and all the musicians, and I was just like, you know, in heaven, you know what I mean? Here's one of my songs, and, and uh, uh, but in the back of my mind, I was saying, you know, I would have did this a little differently, you know? So then I had to start learning how studio works, how to produce, you know, and all of those things. And then I started learning that because you, you keep graduating from, I kept graduating from place to place, you know, first I'm a lyric writer, then I want to play guitar. Then I was in the studio, someone's doing my songs. Then I wanted to learn more because I would have did it a little different, you know, so now I had to learn about studio, uh, you know, the guide, the overall, overall operations of recording studio. I had to learn about producing, how to pay musicians, the musicians union, and, you know, all the business parts, you know, uh, BMI, you know, ASCAP, you know, publishing. And, and I bought this book called This Business of Music by Shamel and Krasilovsky. And I read that book from cover to cover. And I learned everything. Of course, you got to learn how to read in between the lines because life is a little bit different than reading it in a book. It just, you know, it just doesn't compute. So I took that in mind. So I had an open mind and I learned about production contracts, manager contracts, recording contracts, you know, the whole nine. And then I would ask questions you know, like uh, uh, to my uncle and Anthony and some of the other Imperials, you know, I would ask them questions and they would help me out. And Teddy Randazzo, you know, one of the great writer, you know, he would help me out. So I had all of the, uh, uh, the schooling that I needed. I had all the people were there, all the professors, you know, teachers were there to teach me all of this. And I was so lucky to be in this position, you know, to learn all of this. And then when I went to Minneapolis, of course, you know, oh, that's a funny story when I went to Minneapolis because I was married to Prince's cousin. Yeah, how'd you how'd you meet her? I'm all oh, Scott. This is this is amazing story because it taught me a lesson on what you say makes a difference in your life. And, you know, sometimes you got to be careful of what you say. And sometimes the things that you say uh, is meaningful. So my uncle's band, Little Anthony and Imperials, got an invitation to, to uh, play at the world-famous Copacabana in New York. And, uh, of course, I was there. And I'm working with these guys. I'm giving them towels when they come off the stage and you know, hanging up their uniforms and getting them water or whatever they needed. And uh, so one day after a show, Sammy Strain, who's, uh, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. He's with uh, Little Anthony Imperials and also with the OJs. So Sammy comes in and I take his jacket and I said, yo, man, what's up? He goes, hey, Pep. You know. He says, Pepe. I go, yeah. He says, who's that girl? in the waiting room with the green eyes. Now, my brain was just going a million miles a second. You know, who's the girl? And I knew that he had good taste in women. And these guys were always getting the girls. You know, I wasn't getting them. 
they were always getting them. So I said, oh, I said, uh, that's my girl, man. I didn't know her. Never seen her. You know, he goes, that's your girl, man? And I went like, yeah. You know, so I knew if I said that, and they had enough respect for me as I with them, um, that he would leave her alone. He wouldn't even mess with her, right? So after I got finished hanging up his uniform, you know, and the other guys weren't up, upstairs yet, I ran out into the waiting room and amongst all of these people in there, and I had to find this girl with the green eyes. And I finally found her and I seen her and I went up to her. I sat down and I says, hi, how are you? She goes, oh, I'm fine. I said, my name is Pepe. What's your name? She says, my name is Chantel. I said, wow. I said, Chantel, I said, um, who are you here to see? And she says, well, I'm here with my aunt Kalua. And I said, Kalua? And I knew her aunt because my uncle was dating her aunt. Right. And I said, wow. I said, you know, my uncle Clarence you know, is dating your aunt. Do you mind if we hang out a little later on? I said, do you have a curfew? And she was going like, no, I don't have no curfew. You know? <laughs> and I said, oh, good. You can hang out. And that was Prince's cousin. Mm. You know? And, you know, the rest is history, of course. But, you know, I mean, this is how I met her, by just saying to Sammy, oh, yeah, man, that's my girl, man, you know? Now, what if I didn't say that, Scott? What <laughs> if I didn't say that? What if I would have said, hey, I don't know who that girl is, man. You know, here's a towel. You know, yeah, hang up to you. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. would have happened? It's it's you the fate, fate versus circumstance debate. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, absolutely. Wow. So, and what prompted the move to Minneapolis, though? Well, okay. Okay. Of course, I was married to her. And I was working for the New York telephone company as a cable splicer. Then I got involved uh, in a movie that Paramount Pictures was doing. And uh, Irwin Yablons was the producer. And Michael Campus was the director. And it was doing a movie based on a book of uh, a neighbor who lived around the corner from me, uh, Sonny Thompson. Yeah, bass know. player, Sonny. No, not him, but not was, him. Uh, yeah, That's but, funny. You know, okay. And uh, um, he did a book about Attica. And he was one of the people that marched, you know, uh, uh, and was um, inspirational in doing this march to Attica, uh, prison in uh, New York. And he wrote a book, and they were doing a movie based on his book. You know, uh, um, what was the movie? Um, the Oh, The Education of Sonny Thompson was, you know, and I got involved in that. I was with the uh, Brooklyn Academy uh, uh, um, of Street, Brooklyn Street Academy, Brooklyn Street Academy. It was an acting school. So I got involved with that and then went and auditioned for uh, uh, the film. And a lot of my other friends, they got in and stuff as actors. I got in by writing a song called Five Cent Ride to Freedom, which was on the Staten Island Ferry. So I, I my, me and my wife was having little problems. I told her I was in a movie. She came back to Brooklyn and then we went 
after the, I did the film uh, to Minneapolis in 1974, you know. And, and in the movie, they cut out my song. And I didn't even know that they cut out my song until I went to the premiere. Mm. Oh, was that heartbreaking? Come on, <laughs> you know. I'm going like, okay, they come in, they come into my part, and, and Sonny and um, what was the other girl name? I can't remember her name. Uh, Virginia, Sonny and Virginia were on the ferry boat ride. Uh, going to Staten Island, I they rented me a guitar and everything. I had this great acoustic guitar, and I was I wrote this song Five Cent Ride to Freedom" because you only paid a nickel to get on the ferry. And uh, when that part came up, I wasn't there <laughs> on the boat, and they filmed it and everything, but I wasn't there. And this other artist, I'll never forget this guy's name, Leon Ware. Oh, yeah. You know. He had he had did a song and the song was was playing while Sonny and Virginia was on the, the ferry. And all my friends was, you know, at the same time, man, was just like heartbroken. I was heartbroken. But the movie was good and I, I I did get a some kind of scene in there looking at the train as a subway in the subway as the train went by. Uh, uh, I made some money on the movie, of course, because I, I was a day player, you know, so I made, you know, good money. But uh, it, it was a lot of fun doing it. So my wife comes back and then I go back to Minnesota and um, her father, Eddie Mandeville, um, he was a great golfer and he had a ski club, you know, skiing. Now, what do I know about skiing? I'm from the concrete jungle. I don't know nothing about no skis. <laughs> So I went and got me a ski outfit. I went to uh, wherever we were. I forgot. I think it was Trawhagen in Minnesota. And uh, I started skiing. I didn't know what I was doing. I just, you know, I'm from Brooklyn, man. We do anything, man. You know, so I started skiing. And, uh, you know, and after that, they had a ski party. Now, at the ski party, this band was playing. Now, you know, I didn't know any of this. I just out there with my with my wife and stuff. And so this band is playing and it's they called Grand Central. So it's Prince, Morris Day, William Dowdy, we called them Hollywood, Linda Anderson, Andre Simone, you know. And uh I wasn't really particularly listening to the band. You know, I was just too busy doing, you know just socializing and uh but this woman kept looking at me and i'm going like why is this lady looking at me so hard you know so i went over to her table and i sat down i goes hi my name is pepe and i noticed that you're watching me i you know what's going on she says oh my name is levon i'm the manager of the band how did you like the band? How do you like them? And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, they're good. They're great. Then it dawned on me that, oh, man, they think that I'm some big time producer <laughs> from New York and I'm supposed to be checking out the band. Now, I didn't learn this until later. I didn't learn to find this out until later, you know, that, hey, you got this 
big time producer coming in from New York to check you guys out. I didn't know it was me. I just came there to go skiing, to be with my wife, you know, hang out, have a good time. But then I, I caught on and then I told her, I said, oh, I said, yeah. I said, you know, the band is great. They're good. I said, you know, I wouldn't mind working with this band. Then she says, oh, great, great, great. And then we set up rehearsals at her house. That was Morris Day's mom, LaVarne. And we were at her, we started going to her house up in the attic rehearsing. I mean, that's how I got it. I got in, you know, and Prince was in the band and stuff. And, you know, I didn't think anything of uh, anybody that was um, actually uh, uh, um, so good at any instrument. But, you know, together they were, they sounded pretty good. So one well, of the first. Pepe, what was, what was your first just impression of, or impressions of, of Prince, uh, Morris, and Andre? My first impression was it was a band. You know, I didn't look at anybody in particular as being the virtuoso of the band, you know, or anything. You know, I just wanted to hear them play. You know, so I, I go to a rehearsal and I said, OK, play me one of your songs, you know, and I'm, you know, it's a group, you know, and they started playing one of your songs that Prince wrote called uh, Sex Machine. He wrote this, this tune called Sex Machine. So I listened to the song. It was way too long for radio because in, in those days. Radio took songs maybe three minutes, three minutes, 30 seconds, and that was it. After Mars Day had a seven-piece drum set, but he only played three drums, you know? And, I, and, you know, this is me critiquing the band, you know? And the keyboard player, Linda, she was just playing keyboards, and William Dowdy is playing percussion and stuff, and Andre's playing bass, Prince playing guitar, and I'm listening to him. And I said, well, okay, you know, it, before that, they had played a, a Earth, Wind, and Fire song for me. Then I asked them to play one of the originals. And, uh, but they played Earth, Wind, and Fire song better than they played their original. And this was one of the things that I, I spoke to them about. And I was, you know, I said, you know, uh, you play uh, uh, the cover song better than you play your own song. So you have to really work on getting your song together. You have to really be tight. You have to really practice and be perfect. And then I told I'm, um, Morris, I said, you have a seven-piece drum set and you're only playing three drums. I said, you got to play all of them, man. You got to play all. You know, these guys didn't even have driver's license at the time. You know, they were so young. You know, they were 17, 16, 17 years old. And, uh, and, and I started working with them, working with them. And I had to teach them how to, to write songs for that time, you know, like three minutes, three minutes, 30 seconds. So I gave them this formula that you have an intro, then you do your first verse, then you do your hook, then you do your second verse, then you do the hook again. Then you either bridge, do another hook, and then you can vamp out and, that formula leads you to a song about three minutes, three minutes, 30 seconds. And I said, that's what you can have been, have played on radio. So uh, <laughs> one day when I went to the rehearsal, um, Prince 
was playing, and all of a sudden he stopped playing, and he goes over to uh, Linda, Andre's sister, and he, you know, and I'm looking at him and I'm watching him, and then he goes, Linda, this is what I want you to play, and he starts playing the keys, and I go like, hmm, this guy plays guitar and keyboards. I said, hmm, that's awesome, you know. Then he goes back over to his spot. Now, Andre disputes this, but I'm telling you, this is the truth. He asks Andre for his bass. Andre gives him the bass, and Prince starts thumping on the bass. Andre, this is what you should be playing, you know, boom, 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 boom. Now, Andre disputes this because he says no, no musician would give their instrument to another player and tell them to play it or so on, so on, so forth. But this is how I knew that Prince played multiple instruments. I, you know what I mean? I mean, he was already playing guitar. Then he went to the keyboard. Then he went to the bass. And I'm going like, wow. I this guy played guitar, keyboards, and bass. And he was playing it. I'm not saying just like, you know, fumbling over it or had a hard time or whatever. He was playing it like he'd been playing it forever. You know, and I'm going like, wow. So at this point, I was already in Cookhouse Recording Studios recording some of my music. And uh, um, I said to Prince, I said, have you, have you ever been in a studio before? And he goes like, no. And I didn't treat him any different than anybody else because he was my cousin through marriage. I didn't treat him any different. And I says, well, I'm in the studio now. And I want you to come and play, you know, electric guitar, you know, with our own band. And he says, oh, okay, cool. Now, I, I taught these guys about how to make money in the music business before I even asked them to play with me in the studio. You know, I taught them about uh, studio work, studio musicians, recording, uh, 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 phonograph recording contracts that you have to fill out. Uh, um, as a producer, you know, to pay the musicians, musicians, unions, and all this other stuff. So I had took Prince down to the musicians union one day and got him signed up with the musicians union. I was a union member. He's a union member. So he had two weeks to come up with, with electric guitar parts for five songs that I had written. And uh, everybody else. We had like Wendell Thomas who was playing bass. He was around my age. We had Dale Alexander who's playing with Robbie Krieger now. Uh, he was the drummer. He was 16 years old. We had Pierre Lewis who is now the musical director for the Commodores. He was playing keyboards. He was 17. And then there's me. I was like 20 five, 24, 25 years old. And then we had Marcy Ingvogstad, our resident Norwegian. And then we, <laughs> we had Christy Lazenberry, you know, the sister. And we rehearsed there, you know. We rehearsed uh, uh, at Christy's house. And uh, each of them had their own parts to learn of the song that I had written. And I just had guitar on, on cassette with lyrics. And I gave everybody their parts. And Marcy and Chrissy came up with their backgrounds and Wendell came up with the bass part. Dale came up with drums. 
and Pierre came up with keyboard parts, you know. And uh, so we went in the studio and um, Prince came and I had to go pick him up. He didn't even have a case for his guitar, you know. <laughs> we didn't pick him up and uh, went to the studio. And I had no idea what these guys were going to play. All I know is I knew my part. And these guys were good. And I knew that somewhere along the line, this is going to come out great, you know. So I booked four hours at Cookhouse Recording Studios and to do five songs, and we kicked it off. Two, three, four, boom, and just started jamming, right? We did the song, and then we did the next song right after that, the next song after that, and two others after that. And we were done. We did five songs in four hours. And so then when I got back to my home, I listened to the tapes. And after every drove Prince home and everything, you know, I'm listening to the tapes and I'm going like, I said, man, what, what Prince is playing some, what is it? Man, I gotta really listen. I said, this guy is playing some really good stuff. Then my phone rang as my bass player. And he goes like, man, cause he had a copy, you know, he goes, do you hear the stuff that Prince is playing on this? And I'm going like, yeah. I said, I'm listening to it now. And I'm going like, how did he? I said, he played like a studio musician that's been playing for 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've been around, I've been in the studio with some of the best professionals during that time. You know, Eric Gale and stuff, you know, great guitar player. You know, uh, Freddie Hubbard was playing, you know, trumpet and stuff and uh you know all these players and and you know prince was playing like i was I mean, we stayed on the phone for an hour talking about yeah what about the part that he did on games man did you hear that you know at the end i'm going like what the you know <laughs> you know it was just amazing so prince called me up later on and he says, Peppy. And I go, yo, man. I said, you know, you did such a great job in the studio. He said, yeah. He says, but on If You See Me, he says, uh, uh, I, I, I got to do a part over. And I was going like, really? I go, what do you mean? I said, it sounds perfect to me. He goes like, no, man. He says, I, I got to do it over. And, uh, and I said, okay, you know, just that one part. So I called the studio up that morning. I was going to go play golf. I called the studio up that morning and I said, you got to let Prince back in the studio. He wants to change something. I don't know what it is, but just let him go ahead. And by him playing like a studio musician, I had no fear of spending a hundred bucks, you know, for an hour, you know, for him to go in and change whatever he needed change, you know, whatever he thought it was, you know, I had, I said, okay, cool. And this is his second time in the studio. And he went by himself playing to the tracks that we already recorded. And uh, so I went golfing. I wasn't even worried about it. I knew whatever it was, he was going to do good, you know. And, uh, but what happened was he did the part well. But what happened when we left the studio the day before, other people come in and they book the studio. So everything changes. 
you know, they tear down the board and stuff. You got other bands coming in. They doing all kinds of different stuff. So for them to get the exact guitar sound that he had was, you know, impossible unless they marked it, you know, and, and they didn't mark it. They didn't, you know, so they tried to duplicate the sound and is a slight difference on uh, on the song, If You See Me. You hear the first um, chorus on his guitar part and then the second chorus on his guitar part, which should have been exactly the same. You know, this is where he punched in and did a different uh, a line. It was the same thing, but you can hear, I can hear the difference, you know, but it was still cool. It was okay. You know, it didn't disrupt the song or anything like that. I mean, it was really cool. So, and, you know, and I kept working with the band until um, I had to go to New York because when I finished um, my demo, my five song demo, then I flew to New York. Because so, I, I wanted to get signed, you know, you know, to a label, you know. So I took my master tapes. I flew to New York. I went to Teddy Randazzo's house and he had a full fledged studio there. I went to his home and uh, uh, he said, Pep, man, you could add, you know, this and add that, you know. And I said, OK. And he had the know how of all of these other musicians. He went and got horn players and he did the Mellotron had just came out during that time. I don't know if anybody's heard of that. The Mellotron, they had real string parts, you know, in the keyboard form. And it was a tape running in there. So it was like a. Uh, a tape of uh, of strings, you know, violins and stuff. And you can get all kind of violin sounds, you know. And he recorded uh, uh, with a string part on one of the songs, um, Better Than You Think. And I kept it to the day. Then the horn parts that he put on the other songs, you know, I took off because it interfered with the rhythm. I mean, he did a good job, but I felt that the rhythm section and the vocals was the song. We didn't need the horns. It didn't add anything, you know. Matter of fact, it took away from it, you know. So I, I left the string parts and, you know. And it was just the bomb. So I wind up staying in New York. And at that time, you could go to Manhattan, go into a, a, a skyscraper, one of the large buildings, look on the directory, and you can see, oh, Columbia Records is on the 28th floor. You know, RCA is on the 24th floor or whatever. Sony is on the 33rd floor, you know, Brunswick Records, you know, all of these, you know. And I started hitting those go up in the elevator, get up there. And I, uh, uh, secretary says, how can I help you? And I said, yeah, can I, can I speak to your A&R guy? And uh, they was going like, yeah, who can I say? Uh, who's calling? And I said, oh, it's Pepe, you know, Willie. And uh, I have some music I want him to hear. And, you know, and they says, okay. And the lady picks up the phone. Yeah, we have a Pepe Willie out here. He wants you to hear some music. Guy comes right out. Yeah, come on into my office and stuff. I mean, that's how it was, you know, 
And I go in there, and I knew I wasn't going to sign with Brunswick Records, okay? Yeah, Jackie Wilson was signed with them. I knew that I wasn't going to sign with them, but I wanted to get the feel of, of, of shopping, shopping, you know, some material. So uh, I, I went there, and the guy says, yeah, I like it, but, you know, boom, 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 boom. So I wasn't disappointed or anything. Then I went to RCA, and I said, ah, no, I'm not going to sign with RCA. You know, I went to Columbia and stuff and I wanted to be signed with Columbia because they were a bigger company. And so they didn't accept it. Then I went to Polydor. Now, Polydor um, had Roy Ayers and a few other acts. I can't remember who they were, but had some great acts over at Polydor. And uh, I got canceled five times. You know, they would call me up. Oh, well, we have to cancel your... Uh, appointment and, uh, and I said okay no problem then they called me up again and got canceled five times so on the sixth time you know the, they felt so bad <laughs> about canceling me all these other times that when I went to see them I was talking to the vice president of Polydor <laughs> Rick Stevens and before that I had told Teddy Randazzle about, you know, this appointment and how I got canceled five times. And he said to me, he says, well, Pepe, he says, do you want me to go with you? And I went like, yeah. I mean, you know, I never thought of this. You know, here's a multi-million seller, you know, songwriter, producer, going to go with me, you know. And, and he taught me and stuff. So I guess he thinks I'm that good, you know, so good. So he went with me. We talked to Rick Stevens and we got signed, you know, and I took the contract back to uh, uh, Minneapolis. And during that time, we had got, we fired uh, Dale Alexander as our drummer because he kept being late, you know, and we had to set an example, you know, even though he was, I mean, this guy was phenomenal as a drummer and it broke my heart to even, you know, have to let him go, but I couldn't you know, let him get away with all of that stuff. And he was the bass player's brother. So I, <laughs> I couldn't let him. I said, Dale, we have to let you go. So boom, he goes. And then we started auditioning, you know, drummers and stuff. And and we auditioned. Sonny Thompson was one of the, the ones that auditioned for us as a drummer. But I wanted a white guy, you know, even though Sonny was bad, man. I mean, he came with the rehearsal man to his audition and he tore it up and I was going like man I love this cat man he's awesome then uh, Bobby Z Bobby Z came Bobby Rifkin and he auditioned and he was you know fair he was good he was good and I was going like yeah okay we got to get Bobby because I wanted the white drummer and stuff I was influenced by Sly and the Family Stone you know so you know and I wanted a multi- you know, uh, cultural band. And uh, so Bobby got the gig. So we all signed with Polydor and I co-produced our single and the B-side with Hank Cosby. Hank Cosby was a producer and co-writer for My Sharia Moore, Stevie Wonder, and For Once in My Life. Here I am co-producing with you know, a legend, man. You know, one of the funk brothers. <laughs> and uh, so we go in the sound 80 to do our single. 
and Prince is coming out of Studio uh, A. And he looks at me, I look at him, he goes, what are you guys doing here? I said, man, we getting ready to record our single, man. You know, he said, oh, man, he said, can I play on it? I said, sure, man, come on, man. So he stayed with us and he did background vocals on Fortune Teller, uh, which Hank Cosby wrote for us. And he pl and played guitar and he played guitar for us on uh, 1015, which is a song that I wrote. And, There's uh, much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.